All right, we are back. Another professor of English that we uh, we admire a great deal would be Professor Peter Dale Scott, Emeritus Professor of English at UC Berkeley. It's been my hope for many years that at some point Dr. Andy and I might might collaborate on going down to spend some time with Peter Dale Scott. He and Dr. Andy will have much to talk about in the realm of poetry. I would like to talk to Peter about his political activism and uh, cutting-edge work that he's done for the past few decades. I noticed he posted a favorable comment recently about an article that appeared in The Independent asking who really was Jamal Khashoggi. As is often the case in political matters, things are just a little more complicated than they seem at first glance. We've talked a great deal on the show in the past about the... uh, the terrible incident of, of Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist, being murdered by elements of the Saudi government and presumably on the direct orders of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The article, which I recommend to you, goes into some of the details uh, about Khashoggi's background and points out the fact that he really became critical of the regime when Mohammed bin Salman started arresting his friends. Note of the article, Khashoggi's antipathy toward the kingdom was the result of MBS's ruthless shakeup of the establishment rather than a principled desire for democracy. He longed for a return to the old Saudi Arabia, the one before Mohammed bin Salman, before his friends in the monarchy had been arrested, when Saudi had not always been, as he said, as it is now. The article notes, however, that the old kingdom was not substantially different from the new. It had head-chopping, internal repression, and sectarianism. The distinguishing feature of MBS's regime was that in the crown prince's eagerness to consolidate his power, he had moved against his potential rivals and the royal family itself, many of whom were close associates of Khashoggi. In other words, Khashoggi was the casualty of a wider war inside the Saudi kingdom between different factions of the ruling elite. And it is worth mentioning, I think, at this point, that some factions of that old ruling elite were the people responsible for the 9-11 attacks on America. Something that, well, people seem to have lost sight of, but shouldn't. And that's about all I think I'm going to say today. This segment, I think, is going to be distinguished by a lot of uh, random random articles that uh, I think are worthy of comment on. And uh, I guess that's what I have to serve up by way of explanation for a move from... Saudi Arabia to Crisco. About a month ago, I stumbled on an article titled How Crisco Toppled Lard and Made Americans Believe in Industrial Food. This one's worth kicking around a little bit. The article notes that the reader might perhaps unearth a can of Crisco for the holiday baking season, noting that if you did so, you'll be one of millions of Americans who have for generations used it to make cookies, cakes, pie crusts, and more. But for all Crisco's popularity, what exactly is that thick white substance in the can? They note, if you're not sure, you're not alone. For decades, Crisco had one ingredient, but most consumers never knew that. And that ignorance was no accident. That one ingredient, it turns out, was cottonseed oil. They note that a century ago, Crisco's marketers pioneered revolutionary advertising techniques that encouraged consumers not to worry about ingredients and instead put their trust in reliable brands. It was a successful strategy that other companies would soon copy. For most of the 19th century, cotton seeds were a nuisance. When cotton gins combed South's ballooning harvest to produce clean fiber, they left mountains of seeds behind. 
Early attempts to mill those seeds resulted in an oil that was unappealingly dark and smelly. Many farmers just let their piles of cotton seeds rot. But after a chemist named David Wesson, yes, I think that is of Wesson oil, pioneered industrial bleaching and deodorizing techniques in the late 19th century, the cottonseed oil became clear, tasteless, and neutral smelling enough to appeal to consumers. Soon companies were selling cottonseed oil by itself as a liquid or mixing it with animal fats to make cheap, solid shortening sold in pails to resemble lard. Shortening's main rival was lard. Earlier generations of Americans had produced lard at home after the autumn pig slaughters, but by the late 19th century, meat processing companies were making lard on an industrial scale. Lard had a noticeable pork taste, but there's not much evidence that 19th century Americans objected to it, even in cakes and pies. Instead, the issue was cost. While lard prices stayed relatively high through the early 20th century, cottonseed oil was abundant and cheap. Americans at the time overwhelmingly associated cotton with dresses, shirts, and napkins, not food. Nonetheless, early cottonseed oil and shortening companies went out of their way to highlight their connection to cotton. They touted the transformation of cotton seeds from pesky leftover to useful consumer product as a mark of ingenuity and progress. Brands like Cotyline and Cotto Suet drew attention to cotton with their names and by incorporating images of cotton in their advertising. When Crisco launched in 1911, it did things differently. Like other brands, it was made from cottonseed oil, but it was also a new kind of fat, the world's first solid shortening made entirely from a once liquid plant oil. Instead of solidifying cottonseed oil by mixing it with animal fat, like the other brands did, Crisco used a brand new process called hydrogenation, which Procter & Gamble, the creator of Crisco, had perfected after years of research and development. And if you did ever take organic chemistry, dear listener, you surely recall the fact that fatty acids with a straight carbon chain in it are solid at room temperatures, whereas ones with lots of double bonds in it are liquid. The article notes that from the beginning, the company's marketers talked a lot about the marvels of hydrogenation, what they called the Crisco process, but avoided any mention of cottonseed. There was no law at the time mandating that food companies list ingredients, although virtually all food packages provided at least enough information to answer that most fundamental of all questions. What is it? In contrast, Crisco marketers offered only evasion and euphemism. Crisco was made from, quote, 100% shortening, unquote. Its marketing materials asserted, and, quote, Crisco is Crisco and nothing else, unquote. Sometimes they gestured toward the plant kingdom. Crisco was, quote, strictly vegetable, unquote. Also, purely vegetable, quote, unquote, and absolutely all vegetable, quote, unquote. At their most specific, advertisements said it was made from vegetable oil, a relatively new phrase that Crisco helped to popularize. Why go to all this trouble to avoid mentioning cottonseed oil? The truth was, cottonseed had a mixed reputation and it was only getting worse by the time Crisco launched. A handful of unscrupulous companies were secretly using cheap cottonseed oil to cut costly olive oil, so some consumers thought of it as, as an adulterant. Others associated cottonseed oil with soap, or with emerging industrial uses in dyes, roofing tar, and explosives. 
Instead of dwelling on its problematic sole ingredient, then Crisco's marketers kept consumers focused, trained on brand reliability and the purity of modern factory food processing. Crisco flew off the shelves. Unlike lard, it had a neutral taste. Unlike butter, it could last for years on the shelf. Unlike olive oil, it had a high smoking temperature for frying. And at the time, since Crisco was the only shortening made entirely from plants, it was prized by Jewish consumers who followed dietary restrictions forbidding the mixing of meat and dairy in a single meal. In just five years, Americans were annually buying more than 60 million cans of Crisco, the equivalent of three cans for every family in the country. Within a generation, lard went from being a major part of American diets to an old-fashioned ingredient. Today, notes the article, Crisco has replaced cottonseed oil with palm, soy, and canola oils. But cottonseed oil is still one of the most widely consumed edible oils in the country. It's a, reg- it's a routine ingredient in processed foods and is commonplace in restaurant fryers. I did not know that. It's interesting to note that in the wake of the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, which made it illegal to adulterate or mislabel food products, which boosted consumer confidence, Crisco helped convince Americans they didn't need to understand the ingredients and processed foods as long as those foods came from a trusted brand. And one brand that continues to amaze me, uh, given that people still continue to believe in it, would be the Trump brand. I'm amazed to hear, for example, from someone in my neighborhood that, well, well, he's just amazed at uh, the, the fact that people are not grateful to Trump for all the wonderful things he's done for the U.S. economy. Seven million people are back to work, he he said, based on what I guess he heard on Fox News. I'm examining a report from the Associated Press that notes, to the contrary, that U.S. manufacturing activity has fallen to its lowest level in a decade. As the article notes, the sector was hurt by weakening demand and last year's global economic slowdown. What's responsible for this? Well, I'm sure it's multifactorial, but President Donald Trump's trade war with China can't be helping. Now, since we were last before a microphone, it turns out that the alleged president of the United States has decided to assassinate foreign leaders, which he did. You know, if you're of a certain age, you recall back to the 1970s when Gerald Ford announced that it was now the policy of the United States government not to assassinate foreign leaders. Previous to this, it was apparently a right that uh, the U.S. felt it, it should reserve for itself. And of course, some of you will no doubt point out that saying you're not going to do it isn't necessarily the same as not doing it. But at least it was a nice sentiment, which is quite a contrast from a president bragging to a religious fundamentalist group about his actions in assassinating an Iranian leader, claiming he was doing it to stop a war, although he's been unable to explain um, just what he meant by that to date. But for me, things really went south when he told the world that, well, he might strike 52 Iranian sites, including some that are important to the Iranian culture. Such an attack uh, has been condemned as cultural cleansing by Irina Bokova, former director general of the UN Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, known as UNESCO. The deliberate destruction of heritage is a war crime, she told the UN Security Council in 2017, adding it has become a tactic of war to tear societies over the long run. Now, if you think about it, taking out a cultural site, well, remember when ISIS did that in 
Palmyra in Syria, a site I, I'm glad to say I was able to visit before the ISIS took the dynamite to it. Well, this is the kind of a crime against humanity that President Trump said he would like to pursue to teach those Iranians a lesson. The Washington Post had quite analysis of this, which, which I recommend to you. They noted that uh, targeting civilians and cultural sites is what terrorists do. It's a war crime, tweeted Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Over in Britain, a spokesman for Prime Minister Boris Johnson cautioned that, quote, there are international conventions in place which prevent the destruction of cultural heritage, unquote. In response to mounting criticism, White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway said, Iran has many military strategic military sites that could also be considered cultural sites, even though she later clarified that she was not saying Iran was camouflaging military targets within cultural sites. It should be noted that in March of 2017, only weeks after Trump got inaugurated, the U.N. Security Council, with the United States as a permanent member, of course, unanimously adopted a resolution condemning the unlawful destruction of cultural heritage. Anyway, let's let's impeach this guy, shall we? I'd also refer you to a rather amusing, in a dark way, article in CNN.com titled, A Month-by-Month Look at Donald Trump's Top Lies of 2019. And no, we're not going to delve into that too much today, except to note that Trump, according to the CNN, except to note that Trump, according to CNN, made more than 2,700 false claims this year, noting that they're still calculating the final total. They noted that the breadth of the dishonesty was as striking as the frequency. Trump was inaccurate this year about every conceivable topic, from his dealings with Ukraine to the size of his crowds, to literally the time of day. You know, as I'm thumbing through these, <laughs> I really should go through a few of them, but I, I just I just can't bear to do it. Well, Mr. Miller points out that if I'm going to bring it up, i got to do one or two. Okay. How about this one? Let's go back to February. The article notes that Trump has depicted himself as a crusader against election fraud. What happened in February was telling. On February 21st, North Carolina's elections board ordered a new congressional election in the state's 9th district because of an actual case of apparent election fraud, allegedly perpetrated by a Republican operative who was indicted the following week. On February 22nd, Trump was asked for his thoughts and he quickly pivoted to imaginary election fraud in another state. Well, he said, I condemn any election fraud. And when I look at what happened in California with the votes, when I look at what happened, as you know, there was just a case where they found a million fraudulent votes. When a reporter tried to object in real time to the fiction about California, Trump responded with a favorite tactic, an aggressive, excuse me, excuse me, interjection, and then more dishonesty. And how about this one? In March, (laughs) nearly three years after he made his famous Russia, if you're listening, campaign request for help obtaining deleted Hillary Clinton emails, he announced a new explanation. The media had failed to report that he'd just been kidding. Anyway, I I, I hearken back to Robert Caro's uh, milestone series of books that he's written and still writing about the life of Lyndon Johnson. In his first volume, which he started researching in the early 1970s, shortly after Johnson had passed away, he was able to find many contemporaries of Johnson still alive willing to talk about Johnson as a young man. Said one who knew him from his high school days, It wasn't that we thought Lyndon wouldn't tell the truth. It was that we thought Lyndon was incapable of telling the truth. To which I personally would add, 
it's it's not that I think Trump is failing to tell the truth, that more that I think he's simply incapable of telling the truth. Every day he opens his mouth and out come lies on every imaginable topic. At this point, I think I need someone familiar with the Yiddish language, which was always so evocative of the human condition, to ask, what is the opposite of a mensch? Now, we have heard from a usually reliable source that the opposite of a mensch is an unmensch. And since that is a quasi-legitimate term, I think we're going to be using that in the future, at least often, when we refer to Donald J. Trump. The unmensch. All right, let's take a break from politics, at least temporarily, to talk about some good news. Um, and we have a little bit of it here, and God knows we, we do need to inject that from time to time. And talking about recycling, something that a lot of us would like to do to see if we can't do a, you know, our part to save the planet, the bad news recently was that um, paper products that are contaminated with, you know, greasy food, like, you know, your pizza box, etc., are not recyclable, at least not in the paper bin. But according to a uh, recycling missive that I recently received from my local city government, it is possible to take paper that is wet, oily, or contaminated with food residue and put it into your green bin, the thing that you normally put your lawn clippings. Well, I hope you, I hope you just put your lawn clippings back on your lawn, but say your hedge trimmings or banana peels. Well, apparently you can put your, your pizza box and your ice cream uh, container and your used coffee grinds and paper plates, etc., in the green bin. By the way, you can also put bones, fish, eggs, meat, and shells into the green bin, and it will all be properly recycled. It is alleged that these organic materials will be turned into compost and thus restore nutrients and moisture to the soil. And speaking of soil... A lot of folks are investigating the possibility of taking carbon and putting it back into the soil in a manner. Well, we talked to Michael Pollan years ago in this program and were disturbed to learn at the time that the farming practices of the Midwest, wherein you would take animal products and put it back into the earth as natural fertilizer, have largely become abandoned in the modern era which we found horrifying then and and horrifying now. As I recall from my days as an undergraduate student, the cation exchange capacity, which was very high in organic materials, was almost synonymous with making your soil more fertile. Yes, you can take uh, a plot of earth from, let's just say, the moon with no organic matter in it whatsoever, and you can grow a crop on it. My understanding was that NASA or somebody did try this uh, many years ago to see if they get things to sprout and grow, and, and they, they succeeded. But your plants like it better if they have organic material in it. And, you know, shouldn't we all be composting and putting it back on the soil? At least if you have a backyard, I think the potential is there. I certainly have a very large compost pile, and I've been making compost for many decades no, I don't know how long it takes for that material to eventually break down, as I'm, I'm sure it does over the, the decades. But, boy, if we could slow the process down and, I guess, you know, imitate uh, a log that's been laying out in the forest and eventually does oxidize and break down and return to, you know, CO2 and water, but it you know, might take centuries. And right now, we, we could use a few centuries uh, in that process. 
Anyway, the good people up in Marin County are apparently uh, researching the Marin Carbon Project. Where they're applying close to 4,000 cubic yards of compost derived from manure and wood trimmings on nearly 100 acres of land across three farms. Anyway, we'd like to know more about this, and I'm sure some of you listening know a great deal about this. And if you do, why don't you share your knowledge by dropping us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Something else we need to talk about is how to avoid single-use containers. Mr. Merlin sent me an article on this a couple days ago. Too bad I didn't read it. Yet. Anyway, there's a lot of talk about this, and, uh, and, and hopefully we will talk more about it as, uh, as these ideas uh, come alive. But it really strikes me that a lot of this really is reinventing the wheel, you know? I mean, putting compost in the soil. I mean, people were doing this thousands of years ago. You know, it's a good practice. We should do more of it. And what about deposit bottles? Our Mazatlan correspondent, Alberto Escobar, revealed to me in a recent conversation that down Mexico way, they still have deposit bottles. And we here north of the border should also. In past generations, bottles were filled, used, cleaned, refilled, used, etc. I'm sure dozens of times. The reason we don't do it here is because it would cost somebody a few bucks. If you can sell somebody a bottle of soft drink and then bear no responsibility for what happens to the bottle, well, that's good for your bottom line. The same can be said about plastic materials. So it is, the world is drowning in plastic. In a dark sort of way, it's amusing to note that we have made this great experiment with uh, (laughs) our ecosystem without any idea where it's going to eventually lead. Yeah, somebody finally noted, you know, plastic does kind of break down with time into little teeny bits that get to be littler bits and littler bits and littler bits. And now you can go out in the deep Pacific Ocean to the Marianas Trench, go down there and find little tiny bits of plastic. It's everywhere. And, of course, animals that filter feed and animals that survive on organic material are eating it, breaking it down into all sorts of strange compounds of which we uh, have a very limited understanding of. Anyway, something tells me that if we went back to to using bottles that could be recycled and that you paid a deposit for, you know, the world would not end. The U.S. economy would not implode. I, I, I know, I'm not an economist, but I'm pretty sure that's a fair statement. Anyway, we try to avoid the dismal science of economics on this show, but it's not really possible to do so. But I do want to note as we close or get close to closing here that there is really no reason that an angioplasty in the U.S. should cost $32,000, whereas in other advanced nations with good medical care, they cost, well, $6,400 in the Netherlands, $7,400 in Switzerland. And yes, I'm, and it's not the first time we talked about the mess that is health care, but for my money, one of the greatest disconnects in the whole crazy system of American healthcare management is that we have somehow divorced ourselves between the person who needs help, the patient, and the person providing the health, the doctor, nurse, technician, assistant, etc. And in between these two, we have insurance companies deciding through, I don't know, Ouija board technology what the price ought to be, which, by the way, doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the price that's being paid or the price that's 
which, by the way, doesn't necessarily have much to do with the price that uh, people are being charged. It's, it's all a crazy system. In the end, I think this has a lot to do with insurers and uh, large corporations wanting to run things so that it best suits their needs. This might provide a perfect segue into a Salon.com article titled How the Citizens United Ruling Broke the American Democracy at the Start of the Decade, from which it has never recovered, but um, we're out of time. Almost. I need to lighten the mood here as we go out. All right, the couple minutes we have left, I wanted to quote from a, a, a nine-year-old piece of paper I had that was referring to Keith Richards' memoir. In case you're unaware, Keith Richards is the legendary guitarist of the Rolling Stones. They're a band. Looking back on his early career, said Keith Richards, the power of the teenage females of 13, 14, 15 when they're in a gang has never left me. They nearly killed me. I was never more in fear for my life than I was from teenage girls. The ones that choked me, tore me to shreds. If you got caught in a frenzied crowd of them, it's hard to express how frightening they could be. You'd rather be in a trench fighting the enemy than faced with this unstoppable killer wave of lust and desire or whatever it was. It's unknown even to them. The cops are running away and you're faced with this savagery of unleashed emotions. In a matter of weeks, we went from nowhere to London's crowning triumph. All we knew was we were on the road every day of the week, maybe a day off here and there. We got bigger and bigger and it got more and more crazy until basically all we thought about was how to get into a gig and how to get out. The actual playing time was probably five to ten minutes max. In England, for 18 months, I say we never finished a show. The only question was how it would end. With a riot? With the cops breaking it up? With too many medical cases? The biggest part of the day was planning the in and the out. The actual gig, you didn't even get to know much about it. It was just mayhem. We came there to listen to the audience. Nothing like a good 10, 15 minutes of pubescent females shrieking to cover up all your mistakes. We used to play Popeye the Sailor Man some nights, and the audience didn't know any difference because they couldn't hear us. So they weren't reacting to the music. The beat, maybe, because you'd always hear the drums, just the rhythms. But the rest of it, no. You couldn't hear the voices. You couldn't hear the guitars. Totally out of the question. What they were reacting to was being in this enclosed space with us. This illusion. Me, Mick, and Brian. Amongst the many thousands, a few did get hurt. A few died. The limp and fainted bodies going by us after the first 10 minutes of playing, that happened every night. Or sometimes they'd stack them up on the side of the stage because there were so many of them. It was like the Western Front. Well, I don't think these many years later, the the fandom is quite so ill-behaved. But doggone it, they're still touring and they're still filling up large venues. pretty much does it for today's program. Our thanks to our good pal, Dr. Andy Jones, whom we feel certain does not approve of the lyrics, I can't get no satisfaction, but as far as we know, otherwise approves of the Rolling Stones. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan. All right, I'm Douglas Everett, and I'm going to get off before I have my 19th nervous breakdown. We'll see you next week. This has been Radio Parallax.